page 1803 if you're using the Pew Bible. Before we do that, I'm going to read this extended announcement that is in the, the mailboxes in the back. This is expanded from the bulletin, and it says this. This is from our deacons. Brothers and sisters, the deacons have been prayerfully considering how to address multiple situations in our church that we believe are special circumstances of suffering. We know that as a church we are called to care for one another, and the deacons are seeking ways to fulfill this calling together. Today's sermon will focus on what God's word says about caring for each other, including by providing financial help. We are not changing our long-standing practices with regard to providing assistance to those who are in dire financial straits. We are, however, looking to expand the ways in which we provide financial help to members of the congregation facing special circumstances. In order to help the deacons expand the provision of care, we have scheduled a special benevolent offering for next Sunday, October 21st, 2017. As our giving allows, the deacons will use funds collected that are beyond the benevolent reserve we maintain to help in catastrophic circumstances to provide the additional help just described. We hope that this month's benevolence offering will reflect our collective desire to bless those going through trying times. We ask that as you listen and consider the sermon today, you would seek the Lord's wisdom in giving to the benevolent fund, that the deacons might use the surplus funds to be proactive in helping one another through trials. We also ask that you would be in prayer for one another as those who give and possibly receive in the coming weeks. May it all happen in thanksgiving to God and for his glory. We go to God's word then to consider and to see what he says, to give examples to uh, encourage us towards giving and caring for one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, let's begin in verse 5. Begin in verse 5 to connect these two passages and then we'll consider them. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 9. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, 
their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Over the past 10 years or so, there has been a quote that has popped up again and again over the internet and various social media. A quote credited to Mark Twain, and and it goes like this. Kindness is the language that the deaf can hear and the blind can see. That's That's a nice, heartwarming statement, isn't it? Kindness is the language the deaf can hear and the blind can see. The problem is that Mark Twain never said this, probably, unless he said it in private sometime, in a conversation to which we're not privy. Anyone who has spent much time poring over the works of Mark Twain would be surprised to hear him saying something like this, speaking in such warm and sentimental terms. Twain was a realist. He had somewhat of a negative view of the world and of the human race. He said things like this, the one who is not a pessimist is a fool. He saw and distrusted the human capacity for kindness, rather saw it more as a facade and saw selfishness beneath the surface. The Apostle Paul is more hopeful, but he is not more hopeful because he has more hope in humanity in and of itself. He is more hopeful because uh, his hope for kindness and specifically generosity is rooted in what Jesus Christ has done for his people. Thus, all those who have known the generous giving of Jesus will have a heart that desires to give and to receive nothing in return. Our main idea for this morning, perhaps you saw, I I printed off uh, sermon notes, so there are sheets in the back. Um, sorry, I didn't, uh, didn't let, couldn't let you know beforehand. But if you had the chance to grab that, that has the main ideas there. Uh, and perhaps you could grab one on your way out if you didn't get a chance to. But our, our central idea this morning is this. Because of what Christ has generously given to us, we are to practice the good work of generosity so that God's grace may abound in every area of our lives. Because of what Christ has generously given to us, we are to practice the good work of generosity so that God's grace might abound in every area of our lives. Three ideas to unpack that this morning. The first is the reason to be a cheerful giver. The reason to be a cheerful giver. The second is the righteousness of the true giver. And the third is reaping the crops of gospel giving. First then, the reason to be a cheerful giver. And I'll give us the reason right up front. Here is the reason to be a cheerful giver. It's so that God's grace might abound in us to produce good works. That's why we are to be a cheerful giver, so that God's grace might abound in us to produce good works. The occasion for this passage from Paul is a collection that he is taking for the Jerusalem Christians. And the Corinthian Christians, many of them, not all of them, there certainly would have been those of humble means in this church, but many of them would have come from more advanced means than the Christians in Jerusalem. So Paul is challenging them to give for a generous gift that he is collecting for the Christians in Jerusalem. Paul is passionate about this project and he believes that it will reflect the spiritual health 
of various churches as they give to this gift. He wants them to give for the good of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he ends the passage before ours by saying that he wants this to be a gift that is generously given, not one that is given out of what he says is covetousness. In our translation, it says not one grudgingly given. The word there is just covetousness. What would it be to give out of covetousness? It would be to give to something wishing that you were the one who would receive such generosity. It would be giving to something, thinking about all of the things you could do with that money rather than giving it to this gift that is being collected. With this in mind, Paul begins to teach the biblical and the gospel-centered reasons why it is important for this uh, gift of generosity to be one that is not given out of covetousness and why it is important as, as Christians to understand what God calls us to in helping one another as well. He begins by saying a proverb. This passage begins with a proverb, but it's not one that he quotes from the Old Testament. It's not one that you will find anywhere in the Old Testament or anywhere in ancient literature at all. We have nothing that shows Paul was directly quoting this. But he uses something close to a universal proverb, doesn't he? What he says is is close to the idea of what goes around comes around or you always reap what you sow. You always reap what you sow. A close translation of what Paul says in verse 6 is this. The one who sows sparingly, sparingly he will reap. But the one who sows for blessing, for blessing he will reap. The first thing to notice is that in the kingdom of God, our giving unto the needs of others is a type of sowing. It's not as if we give and there's the lump sum and then it is dispensed and that is the end of it. It is a type of sowing. It is the beginning of a process. There's something spiritual that goes on relative to our giving. That's the first thing to notice. So the question becomes, what is the crop that our giving produces? If it is a type of sowing, what is the crop that our giving produces? This is the big question of this passage. If we take Paul's proverb at face value, it seems that the answer is right in front of us. It is blessing that you will reap. If you sow for blessing, you will get blessing. If you are generous in giving money, perhaps, maybe this is what he means, if you are generous in giving money, then it will be a generous outpouring of money that will come back to you. Perhaps you have known Christians who think this way. Yes, they are very generous, but maybe they refer to their giving as seed money. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. They claim that if they do things like pay for lunch or be generous to friends in gift giving, then all of that will come back to them tenfold. If you, if you put dimes in the ground, you will get dollars out. Dimes in, dollars out. It's not so easy, though, for Paul. And if we take consideration of this passage, we see that that is not what he is saying. What is blessing? What is blessing? What we come to see in this passage is that the love and the favor and the grace of God is the ultimate blessing that we must seek. And when we are sowing for blessing by giving generously, we are sowing for the blessing of the love and the favor and the grace of God. Thus, in verse 7, Paul begins to unpack this this thought for us. What he says is that it is the manner of giving which is important. 
not the amount, not the amount that we give, it is the manner of giving that is important. He says that this must be something that is decided from the heart. Give what you decide to give in your heart. There's a wisdom inherent in the process of giving, isn't there? Everyone comes from different means and different situations and circumstances. God is not saying everyone needs to give the exact same amount unto the needs of others in the church. Apply wisdom in your heart. Decide what to give and then follow through with it. In the context of a family, talk it over with your spouse. Decide together what to give and follow through with it. In the context of a family, involve your kids in talking through why you have decided to give what you will give. It's a great opportunity to involve them and to train them in giving. As a family gives, everyone is affected, right? Perhaps the decision doesn't lie with the children, but everyone is going to be affected by it. There is a process and a wisdom inherent in this process. The amount of what you give is not important. It is the manner of what you give that is important. And as you involve yourself in this process of applying wisdom to your giving, deciding what God might lead you to give to something, you show that you are not giving grudgingly. You show in this process that it is not under compulsion. Perhaps you're in the habit of of writing your tithing check twice a month or once a month. And, and you're kind of in the habit of just writing it quickly on your way out the door. And perhaps sometimes you let out an audible sigh or even a groan as you sign the check. But for Paul, more important than the number on the check is the manner of the heart. To give reluctantly is something that we all have seen, perhaps many of us struggle with. In the first ten years of my life, I was the only young boy in the household. So he kind of had Dan's stuff and all, all the girls' stuff. I didn't really need to be trained too much in giving, sharing. So I think I was a bit of a grudging giver at that point in my life. My wife, she is a twin. So she has shared just about everything that she has had from infancy. So she has had to painstakingly train me over the last nine or so years how to give and how to be joyful in giving. We've seen it, sometimes we see it in both children and adults. There's a fake holiday coming up at the end of the month where children are going to get a mountain of candy in order to try to distract them from the true holiday on the same day, Reformation Day. And we've all seen parents, uh, as they see their child's mountain of candy grow and grow and grow, perhaps they tell them, share that with your younger brother or sister. And in that moment, the child begins to think about this, okay, If I don't give anything, they'll probably take away this entire mountain of candy. It's better for me to take one of the thousand Snickers bars I have and to share it to pacify my younger brother, to pacify my parents, and then I can go back to gorging on what I already have. Grudgingly giving. Reluctantly. Or perhaps we could think of the father on the wedding day for his beloved daughter. Walks her down the aisle, and as the groom steps up to receive her, maybe he holds on to his beloved daughter for just an extra couple of seconds with a concentrated glare at his soon-to-be son-in-law. Of course, I'm getting none of this from any of the recent weddings of beloved daughters of this congregation. Nothing like that. Reluctantly giving. Grudgingly 
giving. If compulsion forces you to give, then it is not giving freely. We read in this passage that God loves a cheerful giver, a cheerful giver. That is from Proverbs. It's, uh, there are similar statements in Proverbs 11 and 22 that say something like this, and that's where Paul is getting it. But there is a key word that is changed. In Proverbs, it says that God will bless a cheerful giver. God will bless a cheerful giver. Here in 2 Corinthians, it says that God loves a cheerful giver. The word is changed from bless to love in order to show us that the love and the favor of God are the ultimate blessing. If we take the proverb at face value, it almost seems like what Paul might be seeming to say at the beginning of our passage. You put dimes in the ground and you'll get dollars out. But rather, what he is saying is that a transformed heart, a renewed mind, around the gospel of Jesus Christ, around the riches that he bestows upon us, will have us thinking about blessings in completely different and new ways. True blessing is found in the favor of God. The love and the favor of our Heavenly Father is the blessing that we ought to seek. True blessing is not material wealth. It may be a relative blessing if it is used for good, if it is received with thankfulness and given unto the glory of God. It can be a relative blessing, but, but material wealth is not a blessing in and of itself. So this passage is not Paul promising that we will receive material blessing if we give freely. That's not what he is saying. Paul's vision is a heavenly one, a heavenly one, one that sees the immeasurable riches of grace. You you begin to see why the Bible uses phrases like this to describe what we receive in Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's what happens when we have a transformed heart and a renewed mind. We begin to think about things in a different way. And this brings us to uh, another set of points which he makes in verse 8. Verse 8 to me is, you see what's on the surface and there's something beneath the surface. Paul is using the words all and every a lot. As if to say, in Christ, our resources become so abundant that the material resources that you often trust in, the importance of them fades away. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This verse speaks of being held in the sovereign and gracious grip of an almighty God. It means that our minds are renewed around the idea of blessing. Beyond that, being in the the sovereign grip of a gracious and almighty God means that it is up to him to supply us with all that we need. It's up to God to supply us with all that we need. When we give freely to the needs of our brothers and sisters, when we give cheerfully to the needs of our brothers and sisters, we give our present and our futures into the hands of God. Many of you can recount stories that are similar to this. People who, who are connected to private or Christian schooling have, have many stories like this. For many people, it is, a, it is a stretch, isn't it? It is a stretch to involve yourself in, in private schooling. You look at, at the beginning of the year, you look at the income and the budget, and it doesn't add up. The numbers don't add up. It doesn't look good. But somehow, at the end of the year, you are still standing. 
and God has provided. This is what it means to give freely, to trust yourself to the sovereign and gracious grip of the Almighty God, to trust your present and your future to Him. When you have that kind of faith, you can be a cheerful giver. Verse 8 also shows us that that resting in the sovereign and gracious grip of an Almighty God means that we can abound in good works. We can abound in good works. We will not give freely unless we trust that God is able to see us through, unless that God is able to make his grace and his blessing flow in our lives. The world would tell you that abundant giving is is silly in many ways. Abundant giving is for the rich, those who have extraordinary resources. But that is exactly Paul's point, isn't it? Paul's point is that in Christ, you are rich. Paul's point is that in Christ, you you are overflowing with resources and that it changes the way that you relate to the resources that you have materially and on earth. The reason that we give, the reason that we are to seek to be a cheerful giver is to abound in good works. The book of Titus says that God has redeemed us so that we might be be a people zealous for good works. It's an important part of the Christian life to seek to abound in good works. The book of Ephesians tells us that we are God's workmanship. He he has created us for good works. That is the reason that God has renewed us in Christ. God's desire is that we would abound in good works. So, sowing for blessing is giving out of cheerfulness in order that God's grace would abound to produce in us good works. And this is the tenfold crop of a cheerful giver. It's not dimes in, dollars out. It's cheerful giving and God's grace abounding. When you give generously, that's one good work. But it allows God's grace to abound in your lives to produce many good works. Many good works. It's an opportunity that God gives us to abound in good works. That's the reason to be a cheerful giver. We see also the righteousness of the true giver. The righteousness of the true giver. Paul quotes a psalm in verse 9. Verse 9 of our passage, he quotes a psalm. It's Psalm 112, a psalm that we sang in this morning's service. And we ask, why does Paul use this psalm? Why does he use this psalm? Is he wanting it to apply to us? Is he quoting this psalm? Uh, He As he says in verse 9, as it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Is that primarily talking about our giving, our scattering abroad, our gifts to the poor? In verse 8, the subject is God. So it would seem as though the flow of his thought is that God is the subject here. God is the subject. But actually, while it is God, it is specifically Christ that Paul is talking about here. In the last chapter, uh, Paul has set above all human generosity, uh, above all human giving, the transcendent truth of the true giver, Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful statements in the Bible where Paul says, he who was rich became poor so that those who were poor might become rich. Paul is speaking of Christ in this psalm. There is a cause and effect between the first half and the second half. 
If you look closely at it, it means this. Because he scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. Because he freely gave. His righteousness endures forever. Christ is the true giver. The one who came down from the riches of heavenly glory. But freely gave his life. Who scattered abroad his hope of eternal life. That those who trust in him might be given eternal and immeasurable riches. Because of his giving, his righteousness was established eternally. Christ is the true giver. And because of that, we are called to image him in generosity. We are called to emulate our Savior in generosity. That is what Christ shows us. And it is the benefits of Christ, the true giver, that allows us to abound in every good work. Our righteousness does not stand on its own. Our righteousness leans on the righteousness of Christ. We are always connected to the life that he gives. And the life that he gives and, and the gospel is the ground of our giving. This is gospel giving. Trusting in Christ and seeing him beyond the one who receives that which is given. There's a great joy in, in giving to things, in, in sharing of the resources that God has given to you. There's great joy in seeing what it produces in fellow believers. But we always look beyond that to see our Savior and the righteousness of the one who truly gave, the righteousness of the one who gave himself. Verse 11 says that in him we will be made rich in every way. In every way. Paul's showing us the futility of thinking in terms of enlarging a bank account. Being made rich in every way. It goes so far beyond earthly goods and earthly resources. But the sharing of what God has given to us is how we image our Savior who gives us salvation in him. And of course, this is not just materially. To be made rich in every way, Christ grants us wisdom and love and care and sympathy. And to share from that storehouse of resources as well is part of what binds us together in Christian love. The righteousness of the true giver. And finally then we see reaping the crops of gospel giving. Reaping the crops of gospel giving. It's not just God's grace abounding in us and then good works sprouting up in our lives. That's the reason to be a cheerful giver. But there are also is a crop reaping in those who receive. There are three things. Thanksgiving, the glory of God, and a spirit-wrought love. Thanksgiving, the glory of God, and a spirit-wrought love. This is what Paul says in verses 12 through 14. Those who receive from the generosity of others abound in thanksgiving to God. This is what he says in verse 12. Thanksgiving is not directed towards the giver, but towards God. When we think about this, this makes perfect sense in light of what gospel giving is. Because as resources are given, as blessing is sown, we understand that it is God's grace working in the hearts of people in order to give. If not for Christ, we would not give freely, expecting nothing in return. The world often gives, but it is often to advance their own name. I remember when I was, uh, when I was a young lad, 
This was uh, 15 years ago, call it 17 years ago, something like that. And uh, a very rich man, I believe he's still alive, he gave a billion dollars to charity. And news didn't travel around like it does today. So this was a big deal for about a week, a number of days, right in a row. A billion dollars to charity. But every, every news show, every newspaper article, it was about him. It was about what he had given. In a way, it, was, it helped him advance his own name. People who do not give out of the goodness of the gospel perhaps give to pacify their conscience, make them feel better about themselves, to prop up their own righteousness, to establish their own righteousness. The rich boast in the millions and the billions that they give, thinking themselves better than the ones who would give the same if they had the same resources. But in Christ, we give expecting nothing in return. And we understand that thanksgiving will flow primarily to God. And it gives an opportunity for sanctification to increase in the giver as well. That they receive. And who do they thank? Who do they thank? They thank God. They thank God for the blessing. Thanksgiving to God. Another crop is the glory of God. Verse 13 tells us that when the Jerusalem Christians receive this gift, they will praise God. Because it will be evident that it came from his grace that the Corinthian church would give to people that they didn't know and they would never meet. And they gave to them. They will praise God. There will be a greater result of the glory of God. For all of this can only come from the hands that hold his people in his gracious grip. Paul has this beautiful saying that the their actions would accompany their confession of the gospel of Christ. May our actions accompany our confession of the gospel of Christ. May our obedience accompany our confession of the gospel of Christ. We can share our resources. We can give cheerfully because our God has given us something so much better. They will praise God because of it. And then finally, there will be a spirit-wrought love. A spirit-wrought love. This is the final crop that Paul mentions from gospel giving. Those in Jerusalem will begin to pray for those whom they don't even know. Their hearts will go out to them. Their hearts will go out to them. They will be humbled by God's grace. They will pray for them and they will love them in new and profound ways. It binds our hearts together in the fellowship of the Spirit. In light of all this, then, we know how it is that we are to give in the area of each other's needs. First, we are to give out of wisdom. Everyone will give differently. God is not calling all of us to give everything that we have and to end up on the street. That's not the point of this at all. There's a process led by the Spirit, prayerfully considering. We give out of wisdom, deciding in our heart and sticking with it. We give freely. We give freely and cheerfully. And we sow for the blessing of God's sanctifying grace that in our lives his grace would flow and we would abound in good works that are pleasing to him. We give in Christ whose generous gift established his eternal righteousness in heaven. We give knowing that it will produce thanksgiving to God It will produce a greater result of his glory and it will produce a spirit-wrought love for one another. The opportunity to give 
for the needs of others, for the trials of others, for the hurt of others. This is a calling, but it's also a gift. It's an opportunity that God gives to us, that his grace would flow in our lives and that we would abound in good works, and that to the recipient, their thanksgiving to God would increase and flow as well. Paul ends this passage by saying, thanks be to God for his gift. And he's talking, of course, about our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it is all, it is all centered around that, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what frees us to think this way, to pray in these ways, to consider what we are to do in light of all this. So thanks be to God for his generous and matchless gift of grace in Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God for the ongoing life of the church, the house of cheerful givers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, that you would plant it deep in our hearts, that your spirit would teach us and open us up to the things you would have for us. Father, many of us struggle to make ends meet and, and, and many of us know that, that, that this life is, is often very difficult. And so, Father, today is, is not about a number, an amount. It's not about any of that. Father, this is about your glory. This is about your gospel reigning in our lives. This is about us loving one another with an everlasting love. So make all of those things present. Make all of those things reign And may you be glorified in the life of this congregation. We give you all the thanks and praise. In Christ's name, amen.